Turn, please, to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, please. Once you've found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now, as we come to your word, I pray, our Lord Jesus, that you would rule over this word. Uh, we pray that even as you intercede for us, that you would be praying that our faith is strengthened, that we're able to persevere, that we would, by this, this word, be protected uh, from uh, Satan. And God, that we pray that in protecting us, that you would grow us up. So please, we pray, use this word in our lives as you direct it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I want uh, today, if God will help me, to take up these last three verses, most especially verses uh, five and six from this psalm, it brings um, our preparation for Christmas, our Advent preparations, uh, full circle, really. Uh, you might remember on the first Sunday of Advent, as we considered uh, the, the word of the prophets, we remember that Jesus used this particular uh, psalm, most especially the first verse, to assert and to attest to his own authority. The question, as we were working our way through the Gospel of Mark, the, the question that came to Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? One of his responses and really his trump card concerning he was that he was not only David's son, but also David's Lord. And so we see the Lord says to my Lord, that is to David's Lord. And so Jesus was saying, that's the Christ and I'm the Christ. And thus my authority is that I'm not only David's son, but I'm his, I'm his Lord. I'm the very Lord of glory. And we know then that he came, the Lord Jesus did, and made purification for sins. That is, he purchased men from every tribe and nation for God. That's what he did. He, he completed that work. And after completing that work, he ascended. And when he ascended, he ascended to rule in the midst of his enemies. And ruling in the midst of his enemies, uh, he, he and could rule because he had already, by way of the cross, rendered powerless everything that would keep those he purchased from coming to God through him. Now, that was a complicated sentence. Uh, but I've said it now a million times in the last month, all right? And so you're, I hope you're catching this whole notion that Jesus, in making purifications for sin on the cross, rendered powerless Satan, our flesh, the world, and even death, for those he purchased, so that nothing would hinder them in coming to him. And so after making purifications for sins, you, you heard Clay read, I think from John chapter 6, uh, Jesus saying that the will of his father is that he would lose none of those his father gave him, those he purchased. So he ascends to heaven to rule. And he rules in such a way that all those he purchased will come to him because he rendered powerless every enemy against them. 
And so Jesus is now doing that. He's now ruling and reigning. And he's ruling and reigning by his spirit. It's a spiritual reign. Ruling and reigning by his spirit through his word. And through the prayers of his people. And through the testimony, through the witness of his people. And he's drawing these very ones to himself. Those he purchased. So he comes, he makes purification for sins. He ascends and rules and reigns over that which he accomplished. So it comes to fruition. And thus we resonated with the angels who said, glory to God. What a work. What a great and powerful Savior. And then we realize, too, that he is not only king, but he's priest. And he's a priest who always lives to intercede for us. Scripture said that he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, when I was a little kid, this just came to me the other day. I don't know if you had sparks of things that happened to you when you were a child. It came to me that I memorized that verse wrong as a kid. At least that's how it stuck in my head. The way it stuck in my head was that he lives to always intercede for us. Now, that's true. He does. But the point of the verse is that he always lives. He's always living. That he never dies. That he never stops. That he continues. You see, the problem, one of them, with the Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, was that the priest would die. And you have to get a new one. And the new one might not be as good as the old one. But Jesus always lives. And so we're secure in our salvation as Christ's priesthood is indestructible. And since he always lives, his priesthood is indestructible. Therefore, he'll continue to intercede for us. And as long as he's interceding, we're safe. Because he's interceding so that our faith remains, so that we do persevere and that we are protected. And so as long as he always lives, and since he lives to intercede, then we're safe. And even the likes of shepherds, just regular, common, ordinary folks. And now this Sunday, we face this Bethlehem candle that tells us that Jesus was born in this small, insignificant town. You know, one of the great dangers of our celebration of Christmas, out of the context of the whole of redemptive history, out of context of, of the whole person of Christ, is that we can have the wrong complete image of Jesus, that is to say, we can see him meek and mild only. He certainly he's mild and certainly he's gentle and certainly he's meek. That's a great characteristic of Jesus. We sing in our Christmas carol, carols, a mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more should die. And he does this. He, he lays his glory by in his first advent. In his first advent, when Jesus comes, he lays his glory by. He doesn't come as the judge of the earth. He comes to save, not to condemn. And so he lays the glory that he, is really his, he lays it aside and humbles himself so that by obedience he may become the perfect high priest. But now that he ascends, he rules and reigns and he's coming again. And when he comes again, it will not be to make purification for sins. He's done that. It will be to judge and to gather his own. Notice verse 5, as David writes of the Christ, he says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. And verse 7 is just added. It says, He will 
drink from a brook beside the way, he will lift his head up. That is to say, he'll not tire of that. That battle won't get him down. He'll be refreshed even in the midst of it. Now, you can't read those verses casually. You can't just sort of skim them and, and say, oh, they don't mean... They mean everything. We think of rumors of war and it frightens us. We think of what happened on September 11th and how vulnerable we are and the, de- and, and, and the great devastation that something like that can have in a people's lives. And not to make light of any of that. But it's little compared to the day of God's wrath. The Lord is at your right hand. You will crush kings. And the reason it says kings is because David would know as a king, as a king who was the one who was the representative of God's righteous rule on the earth, he knew that he was called as king from time to time to bring judgment on other nations. And what would convince his people that he had conquered these other nations is that he crushed the kings of those nations. In some sense, it was nothing to crush the peasants. It was nothing to crush the common people. But it was something to crush the kings. If you got to the king, you got to the country. And so he says he's going to crush the kings. And thus it says this wrath will permeate its way through everybody. He'll judge the nations. And again, in in very dramatic fashion, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He says a day is coming, a day of judgment now. We don't particularly like to think of these things, and I don't blame us for not wanting to think of these things. Very often we we have a tendency to try to avoid judgment passages, judgment sermons, judgment thoughts. There's an expression, and it's not a bad expression if you use this expression, I didn't hear you say it. Um, Because I've used it, and it's right for Christians, but dangerous as an ethic for all humanity. It's the phrase that happens, that people say, oh, it's all good. It's all good. Well, it is for Christians because of God's work. Everything will work out good, but that doesn't mean every individual situation is good in and of itself. There's evil. And not for everybody will all things work together for good. But we say that because we have this sort of eternal hope that everything's going to work out just fine. But the truth of the matter is the way that everything works out is the judgment comes. And so we have to be careful not to be flip about that, about those kinds of expressions, those sorts of things, because judgment, in fact, does come. This isn't sort of just the, just the territory of the redneck fundamentalist. This isn't just the territory of those primitive religionists, the unscientific minds, because the word concerning judgment comes from Scripture itself. In fact, perhaps... The most famous or infamous sermon preached on judgment was one by Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, his text came from Scripture. His text, here's a copy of that sermon. I won't read you it. Just a little. But his text was from Deuteronomy chapter 35, uh, 32, verse 35. And the text is this concerning God. It's God speaking. It is mine, that is God is saying this, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. That's the word of God. Edward's introduction to this sermon. In this verse, the violent anger of God is threatened upon the wicked and unbelieving Israelites. who are God's chosen people living under the benefits of his grace. But who, despite all God's wonderful works toward them, were without sense and had no understanding in them. Though cultivated by the blessings of heaven, they brought forth only bitter and poisonous fruits. The verse I've chosen for my text, 
their foot shall slip in due time, relates to the punishment and destruction of these wicked Israelites. And so it does. And to us too. It's the word of God. Edwards makes a number of, draws a number of conclusions, states a number of implications of this text. Just one preliminary one is this. He says, the only reason they've not fallen already is that God's appointed time has not yet come. The text says that when their appointed time does come, their foot shall slip. Then by their own weight, they will be left to fall. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And at the very instant he does, they will fall into destruction. As a man standing on the slippery slope at the edge of a pit cannot stand unassisted, when he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. We see evidences of the judgment of God all through Scripture. It begins in Genesis chapter 3. We see it when God expels Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. We see it in the flood when God brings judgment on the whole earth by way of flood. We see it as he judges Sodom. We see it as he judges Egypt in the plagues of Egypt. And he brings then that great judgment of the death of the firstborn Egyptian son. We see it even amongst the Israelites as they complain and the earth opens up and swallows those who complain. We see it as, as, as various ones complain against Moses and they find themselves breaking out in leprosy. We see it as one steals that which isn't his own and the whole community is judged by God on behalf of the actions of that one. We see it ultimately in, in Israel, both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, as on the one hand the Assyrians come, on the other the Babylonians come and destroy and send into exile uh, the people of Israel. We see it in the, in the New Testament even with Ananias and Sapphira as they bring in this gift and they lie about it concerning what they're giving in the context of the church and God judges them and they die. We see it uh, in Herod's life as in his pride he makes various statements and, and in Acts chapter 12 we see that he dies. We see it even in the church in Corinth when they're taking communion unworthily and Paul says some of you have fallen asleep prematurely. Meaning that God's judgment has come upon you for doing that. And so we see evidences of God's judgment. And we realize that judgment is a fact. The scripture refers to God as the judge in the book of Hebrews. There's a, a phrase, God, comma, the judge of all the earth. He is the very one who will judge. So it comes through scripture. We, we see it and hear it on the, on the lips of our Lord Jesus very often, you won't be able to keep up with me, so let me just read you some scriptures. From Matthew in chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is Jesus speaking of the great penalty, the great punishment, the great retribution that hell is. And so he says, be afraid of, if you're going to be afraid of something, be afraid of that. When he speaks to unrepentant sinners, he says this, he says, but I tell you that it will be more, desire, more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment uh, than for you. And then again, in chapter 13 of Matthew, as Jesus is telling a parable, he, he speaks of those who will be judged and who are wicked. And he says, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus speaks to us about our own lives in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 9, he says, and if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. 
for it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. And so Jesus is very, very serious about judgment. In Matthew 25, we read of this time when the Son of Man comes to judge all the nations. And uh, he judges them uh, according to how they've treated the least of his brothers. That is, how they've treated Christians. And so he uh, says to them, after he separates the sheep and the goats, the sheep who loved the brothers of Christ, the goats who didn't, he says of them, they will go away into eternal punishment. Eternal, eternal punishment. And the righteous to eternal life. As we read through the, the, the New Testament, we see, again, all kinds of references to this time of judgment. For instance, in Acts chapter 17, Luke records Paul's preaching in Athens. And he says, for he that is God has set a day when he will judge the whole world with justice by the man he has appointed. Um, he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. That is, Jesus will be the judge and on the day of his appointment he will, he will come and he will make judgment. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, the apostle writes this. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. There's a, a day coming that he describes as a day of God's wrath, which David spoke of in Psalm 110. A day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. In 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1, Paul writes this, verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give grief to you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. No one's going to be speaking of Jesus when he comes again in terms of mild he lay his glory by. That's right to say of his first coming, but not right to say of his second coming. No one's going to say, here's the mild, meek, gentle Jesus. He comes, it says, revealed from heaven in blazing fire with powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have, who have believed. We've spent in our time of Psalm 110 a little bit in the book of Revelation because it describes for us life, real life, between the first and second comings of Christ. And over and over and over we see a pattern where at the end of each vision that John sees, there's a judgment. And these judgments become more explicit as the book of Revelation moves on. And so finally, by the time we get to the end of it, the judgment scenes are occupying a great deal of each vision. And we see that, for instance, in Revelation chapter 18, uh, is, is, we read these words. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every, every unclean and detestable bird. That is, this Babylon is the, is the image of the seductress that works in context of Satan and the world to, to lure us away from God and to set up a whole system that rewards our lusts and our desires and keeps us from Christ. And so now he's saying she's fallen that is judged. And then the nations even in verse 3. For all the nations have drunk of the maddening, maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her luxuries. So verse 6 says, Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. 
mix her a double portion of her own cup, give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. And so you see, there is judgment. Verse 9, when the kings of the earth, David spoke of the kings of the earth being crushed. When the kings of the earth had committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they'll weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand afar off and cry, Whoa, whoa, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. And then the merchants of the earth are judged, the sea captains even. Because judgment comes. And then in the midst of this, we read this in Revelation 19, verse 1. John says, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah. And you're thinking, Hallelujah? Yes. Hallelujah for all those who love the justice of God. Hallelujah from all those who know him and see him in his glory. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. Then in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is The word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Of course, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Then I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider of the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Again, great imagery, but of this day of wrath, this day of judgment that comes by the very hand of our Lord Jesus Christ. This time not mild, this time in judgment. Chapter, 11, chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as, accorded, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, this great scene of final judgment. Another look at it. Judgment's the same, but another look at this judgment as well. The very fact that judgment is, in fact, to come. And it comes by the hand of our Lord Jesus. Let me read this to you. I'm setting you up, so hang on. In John chapter 5, verse 22, 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. 
Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. As they honor the father, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And so it's the Lord Christ who judges. And who else would be better? Because, you see, to be judged means you must have the authority to judge. It means you must be good and have the right standard to judge. It means you must be wise and know everything so you can make right judgments. And it means you must have the power to execute your verdicts. And that is Christ. For he's the creator of the whole world. He's the creator of all that is. All belongs to him. Therefore, who else could judge but the very one to whom it belongs? He has the authority for that. Not only that, he is perfectly good. His standard is perfectly just. He is righteous. And he will judge by righteousness. You see, righteousness means right. (laughs) It means rightness. It means having the right standard by which to judge, by which to live. Um, Students, when you make A's, you're being righteous in an academic sense. Because that's the standard. At least it's a dad's standard. (laughs) A professor's standard. It may not be your standard. You're thinking, see, I'm righteous. (laughs) But according to some standard, I suppose you are. Uh, Athletes who perform well and, and please their coaches are being righteous in that sense. I shared in our men's Bible study this stupid little story the other day that, you know, the, the way that, you remember the Righteous Brothers? How they got their name, you probably don't know, but somebody was listening to them early on in their career and they said the only, the classic 60s thing, that's Righteous Brother. <laughs> and that's how they got their name. But what they meant by that was, you're, you're singing right, this is right, this is the way singing ought to be, and so you're righteous. Alright? And Christ is Righteous. And thus, he not only has the authority as creator of the earth, but he's good. And he has the right standard. And it's not a standard that comes apart from himself. It's a standard that comes from his own character. It's who he is. He's never being hypocritical when he's judging righteously. You and I may well be. We know what's right. We can tell what's right. And we enjoy telling other people when they're wrong. But that's awfully, almost always, in some sense, hypocritical because we're never living the right that we know we ought to live. But Christ always is. His right is always right. It comes from his very character. And of course, he's wise. He knows everything. You can't plead your case to Christ and say, but, but you don't know all the facts. Because he does know all the facts. In fact, he even knows the fact of your own heart. And because he's ruling and reigning, because he's king, he has the authority and the power To bring whatever his judgment is to pass. And thus he's the one, you see. He's the very one that should judge it. It only makes sense. And it's necessary, you see, for God to judge. Because if God were indifferent between good and evil, he would not be an admirable being. One who's indifferent, one who says it really doesn't matter whether it's right or not, whether it's good or evil, is not someone who is moral, who is righteous. And thus, he must judge if he is to be moral, if he is to be right. And so, it only makes sense that he must. Now, this raises a number of questions. First one, this. Upon what are we judged? Upon what are we judged? Let me read a couple of verses. Uh, Matthew, 
and chapter 12 and verse 33. Make a tree good, this is Jesus speaking, and its fruit will be good, and make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, who are evil, say anything good? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man stores uh, and brings evil things out of the evil stored in him. But I tell you that men will have, a, have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. So we know there. We'll have to give an account for every word, every careless word that we speak. So we'll have to be judged upon, given an account of the words that we say. Verse 37, for by our words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. That is to say, what you say reveals what's in your heart. Uh, not only that, Matthew 16 and verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. And so, he's going to judge according to what we have done. Now, Romans and chapter 2 and verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person, each person, according to what he has done, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, will give it. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show baptism. And so, again, each person, every single person, according to what he has done. Turn to Second Corinthians and the chapter 5, if you're keeping up here. Second Corinthians and chapter 5, verse 9. It says this. Uh, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for, this is the reason we make every reason to, to please him, our goal to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Finally, turn to Revelation again, chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And so there's books. There's books that record everything that we've done, and we're judged according to what we have done. And it appears that all people are judged according to what they have done. And the great judgment of the sheep and the goats. Everybody was judged. The sheep got to be sheep. Good news. The goats had to be goats. Bad news. But everybody got judged. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All the dead would be judged according to what's in these books. So that raises another question. Which is, hold the phone. I thought... We were saved by grace through faith. If we're judged by what we say and we're judged by what we do and the standard is righteousness, the righteousness of God, how then can anyone be saved? And of course, the answer is God keeps two sets of books. Notice. Then, 
the dead and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake is the second death. If anyone's name, verse 15, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you see, everything will be judged. It isn't that God puts some things under the rug. Everything will be judged. However, for unbelievers, when their sin is judged, it is judged and noted that it's unpaid for. And thus, because it's unpaid for, they then will have to suffer the penalty, the just retribution. They'll have to get what they deserve, which is hell. Then, those who are believers in Christ, their sins will be judged sin, but, noted, paid for, covered, forgiven. Those sins, all of them, have been paid for. Thus, God who is just wouldn't extract penalty again. That would be unjust. It would be unjust to get paid twice. So, they're free and belong to him. Everything judged according to what we've done. Sins of believers judged forgiven. Sins of unbelievers judged unpaid for. And thus you see, still saved by grace through faith. Because of the second book, this book of life, there's all the books that have recorded everything that everyone has done. But then there's the book of life and that's the key. If our name is there, it means paid in full. It means debt paid. And not only that, you see, but even as we're being judged by what we've done as believers, hang on to this. Our works and what we say as believers should testify, will testify in the courtroom of the kingdom of heaven, will testify that we really do belong to Christ. Because, you see, the truth of the matter is, it isn't that we're any better than anybody else, but as redeemed people, as James says, faith without works is dead. It's not saving faith. What that means is real faith in Christ leads ultimately to those good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, some of these works that we do will be called to testify by Christ on our behalf that we really do belong to him, that we really are people of faith. There's a relationship between our lives and our faith. There must be. And so, by the grace of God, our sins paid for. And yet still, our works will testify on our behalf that we are children of God. That we really do belong to Him. Now, what do we take home from all of this? First this. Understand that history doesn't cycle, but is moving to a conclusion. And that conclusion is when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes in judgment to evaluate everything and to divvy up at that moment in time. Understand this too. That if you have been, that if you are, and that if it occurs to you in the future, a victim of injustice, if it happened in your family, if in your job, if in the church, if in business, 
the justice delayed by God is not justice denied. But a day will come when justice will rule upon the earth. And that, you see, frees us. It frees us from bitterness and despair. It frees us from, from needing to take vengeance. Because we understand that vengeance really is God's. And if there is something to repay, because God is just, it will get paid. That's the way he is. That's his moral character. Now, it may well be, and this is what we're freed to pray for those who are unjust towards us. We're free to pray that God will forgive them. Not unjustly, but that Christ will have actually taken upon himself on the cross the burden, the pain of that injustice, that he will have already paid for that. Because if he didn't, they're then left to pay for it. And so it frees us to know we don't need to be bitter. We really can forgive. We don't need to press, but we can trust. Now that doesn't mean that we let every injustice pass. We don't. Because we're created in the image of God. And since he's just, we bring justice to bear in various situations with the hope that in bringing the truth of the wrong done, that the person will repent and come to faith. If never challenged with the injustice, they'll never know that there is a God who judges. And they're in great jeopardy and great danger. But we bring that to them. But not in vengeance. And not in bitterness. But amazingly, in love. Why? Because we're freed from having to take vengeance. Because we know that if anything needs to happen in justice, God will bring it. It frees us so that we don't have to live between the, the bitterness of Psalm 73 and the apathy of Second Peter chapter 3. Now, if you want to look spiritual, you'll nod at this time. Because you go, yeah, I know what's in those passages. So let me just refresh the rest of us. Uh, Psalm 73 is a great passage of, 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 of David, of an Israelite, saying, I must have lived my life in vain. Because I've tried to live right. I've tried to please God. I've tried to be righteous in my life. But it just hasn't paid off. Because I look around and I see that the unrighteous are healthy and wealthy and respected and, I, and I'm poor, and I'm, and I'm sick, and nobody likes me. And so, I, I must be living my life in vain. But when we realize that God is just, and justice, deni- justice delayed is not justice denied, we may be able to see like the psalmist in Psalm 73, who then says this, When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. There will be justice. And so I needn't be despaired because my love for Christ, my desire to follow him, doesn't seem to be rewarded by the world. That's all right. It will be. And then, of course, in Second Peter in chapter 3, we have a group of people who are called scoffers. And they're doing what scoffers do. They're scoffing. And in the midst of their scoffing, what they're scoffing about is that they're saying to these Christians, they're saying, you've been saying Jesus is going to come back for 20, 30 years. And he hasn't yet come. We don't think he is. It's now been close to 2,000 years. And he still hasn't come. It would be easy to despair. 
It would be easy to become apathetic and say, I guess it just, this really doesn't matter, does it? And God pulls us aside and he said, oh yes it does. Because in the very word of my son, in the very word of Christ, he will come and he will come. And there will be a day of reckoning, there will be a day of judgment. And you need to warn people, you need to tell people that this time now is not God apathetic, not God forgetting, not God having lied, not us knowing, not knowing the truth. But this time now is the very patience of God. Their only hope is that he delays and that in that time of patience that they repent and come to him because that's their only hope. And so we need to understand that this isn't a time of God forgetting or a time that God hasn't told us the truth, but rather it's a time of patience in God and we need to come to and encourage people to come to repentance. And not only that, you see, this is a time when you have a motivation for living righteously because God is watching and he is just and he is gracious and he does reward us. No, I have, to, I have to tell you, I don't understand well at all what it means when the Bible says there are rewards for us in heaven. I've always thought a bad day in heaven's better than a good day in hell. So I don't know what that means exactly, except I'm flabbergasted by it. Because just as I was saying at the, announce, at the offering time, it's so amazing to me that God takes people who can do no good in and of themselves and he transforms our lives and he sets us on a course of doing those good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his strength. And then when we do anything, even marginally well, he then rewards us with a reward that's so far in abundance of what we could have ever earned. It's amazing. And I just don't know what to say to that. It's just grace. But yet he is watching. And he is just. And he is a rewarder of those who truly seek him. And thus, there's never a loss in following Christ. There's never a loss in following Christ. There's only great gain because he is just. And not only that, this is the motivation for evangelism. It's not the primary motivation for evangelism. The glory of God is the primary motivation for evangelism. But in the midst of all that, as we see in the lives of others, we realize there really is a judgment coming. We must really warn. We must really tell. We must really speak this truth in love because this really is true. And of course, it's a great motivation for faith. Because if, in fact, Christ will come and judge according to what we've done, how can any stand? Unless our name really is written in the book of life. Edwards ends his sermon with this sentence. He says, therefore, let everyone who is without Christ now wake up and flee from the wrath to come. Isn't that good counsel? It's not a crazy man. It's not some lunatic who is trying to scare people. It's the word of a man who understands the truth. And thus he says, therefore, if we are without Christ, by the mercies of God, wake up. Flee from the wrath that is to come. For Christians, I, I think of this verse out of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 27. The author of Hebrews says, Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, 
but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And thus you see, it will come, this judgment, and all will be judged. The question is, how will your works be judged? Left unpaid? Paid for. During this Christmas season, we realize Christ has come. When he came, he made purifications for sins. He ascended into heaven to rule and to reign so that all those he purchased would come to him. And we realize the day is coming when he will come again. And when he does, all that will be open, all that will be made known. And thus he bids us now even come, believe, trust. Jesus said, be awake, wake up, be ready. Because you don't know the day or the hour. The way that we're ready is to trust. And to trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray. Father, even on this day, that there would be none among us who has an unbelieving heart. And Father, I pray that if unbelief is uncovered, I pray by your Spirit that you will bring repentance. And I pray for anyone, Father, who even now realizes that on the day of the coming of Christ, this second coming of Christ, when he comes not mild to lay his glory down, but he comes in blazing fire in all his glory, justice and grace. And Father, if there's any who fear that day because of not being right, I pray they even now turn in faith in Christ to you, that all sins might be paid for and life renewed. And Father, for those who know themselves to be in Christ, I pray this day would not be a day of fear for us, but rather a day to wake us up that we might call others to repentance at a day to which we may look forward as Christ brings completion to all that he promised. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that uh, elders are available to pray. Please take advantage of that situation.